Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, May 10th. We begin with a look at this week's edition of the West Block. We catch up with guest host Eric Sorensen, national affairs correspondent for Global News. Eric brings us the latest on the federal conservative leadership race, including details on his discussion surrounding the race with former conservative cabinet minister Peter McKay. Next, we look at the sky high price at the pumps we're currently seeing, specifically the inflated price of diesel. We speak with Professor Dimitri Anastakis from the Rotman School of Management about the broad impact high diesel prices have from filling up to groceries and the entire consumer supply chain. As fourth doses of COVID vaccine roll out, doctors are noticing that the uptake from seniors is quite low. We speak with a Calgary physician and trauma therapist to find out why our elderly are not so eager to roll up their sleeves for this booster. And finally, it's our regular segment with the travel lady, Leslie Cater. This time out, Leslie explains why the long waits at airports are happening for travelers across the country and what you need to know if you're planning a trip in the near future. This week on the West Block, guest host Eric Sorensen was joined by by former Conservative Cabinet Minister Peter McKay to discuss the Conservative leadership race following a heated, unofficial debate. And Eric joins us now. Yes, Eric Sorensen, National Affairs Editor and Correspondent for Global News. Good morning to you, Eric. Good morning to you. Uh, well, you had that conversation with Peter McKay. What did he feel we can expect to see of the upcoming official official leadership debate for the Conservative Party? Well, I think his, uh, his concern is that we'll see more of the same that we saw in the first uh, more unofficial debate that happened last Thursday. Um, you know, if you were expecting a, a preseason skirmish in this debate, it felt instead like the puck had been dropped in the Stanley Cup finals <laughs> and they were at it um, tooth and nail. It was, uh, it was not civil. Uh, the elbows were up. And it was only within moments that you saw sort of the entire campaign for the leadership take shape within uh, within those first few minutes to understand what was at stake, but also what may be uh, the shape of the the campaign to come when Pierre Polyev, who is so very excellent at being aggressive, just went after um, Jean Charest as a scandal-plagued liberal um, attacking him. And Charest, on the other hand, showing that uh, although he's been around for a very long time, he doesn't seem to have lost anything in terms of his oratory and his debating skills as well. So... There was a lot of attacking going on, and McKay, for one, thinks that that's not a good uh, a good thing for the party. That the party has to think beyond just winning this uh, leadership, and it has to have somebody that they can present as electable after the leadership is settled to a to a wider uh, electorate in the the next general election campaign. And I, I mean, aggressive and angry seems to be indicative of the state we're in in the world right now, doesn't it, Eric? So not terribly surprising that the candidates might come out that way. But yeah, I guess that's the overall feeling then, isn't it? That maybe that's not what Canadians want or need right now, especially looking to find a leader. You want someone with class and someone who can kind of bring down the rhetoric, right? Well, and, it, and I think the concern for some, including Scott Aitchison, who was on the, on the podium with the others saying that he wanted to keep it civil, um, that, that that when you do, when you do this, you um, you don't necessarily make your party more electable. You've had now three elections in a row that you've lost. The last two, you could make the case, was because you you hadn't sort of broadened the party enough to overtake the Liberals. And so, are you going to be in that same boat again? Uh, we'll see. I mean, one thing that Mr. Polyev has shown is that he can attract big crowds, but. Big crowds, angry crowds don't necessarily reflect the overall size of the population that's going to vote. 
uh, in the next election. So it it remains to be seen what to, whether he can catch fire in a in a way that is beyond you know the party itself. It was uh, Eric in March of this year that uh, Peter McKay uh, you know put out the announcement that he would not be seeking leadership. He would not be throwing his uh, his hat in the ring, so to speak, or his name into the race. Do you get the sense that he is completely done with federal politics, or is this a bit of a pause for Peter McKay, who some thought would have a real shot at the at the job? I I I have to think that he's uh, perhaps thinking that you know he's into private um, practice now. Um, and he's been out of the uh, out of the scene for a few years. You might feel that he has kind of seen his you know ship sail when it comes to coming back to that. But you never know. He's, he's a young man. He's you know healthy. And when we talked to him, he could. I mean, there was a Zoom call. Uh, he looked great. So you know, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't rule anything out. I, and I don't know to be honest. Uh, Eric, you also talked with Karina Gould on the West Block Families, Children and Social Development Minister about the leaked Supreme Court document in the U.S. threatening to overturn abortion rights in the United States. And as much as that's, you know, an American issue, it also really does reflect on us here in Canada. And as we continue to talk about the conservative leadership race, there were a lot of conservatives who didn't come out and, and they're being criticized for not taking a stand on on what was leaked, Correct. Well, you know, there is, uh, we didn't talk in our, you know, so far about Leslie Lewis, a serious contender, maybe more so now because she is seen as the, the pro-life candidate um, because of the questions around abortion access coming to the foreground in this country after they do in the U.S. Um, you know that this will, this will fuel the anti-abortion side of things on this side of the border because anything that is big in the U.S. in terms of social turning points tends to have a way of spilling over here, whether it was Me Too or Black Lives Matter, in this case, abortion. So I think it's going to kind of catch on a little bit more in terms of the conversation. I think everyone was caught flat-footed, and uh, that includes the government um, by the U.S. Supreme Court leak uh, last, uh, last week. And so the government here has committed to increasing access to abortion. They say that they have put up $45 million to do so. But we're still waiting. I mean, the government has been in office now for seven years. We're still waiting for something a little more concrete um, in the way of regulations that will be coming probably from uh, Jean-Yves Duclos, the health minister. But the minister who's been speaking to it for the government so far has been Karina Gould, the minister of families, children and social development. And, um, you know, even their partner in government, governance these days, uh, Jagmeet Singh of the NDP, says there's been a lot of talk and no action. So... Um, it's uh, many people now are kind of waiting, I think, more specifically for the government here to do something because it hasn't really been in the news and hasn't been on the front burner. But suddenly it is mm-hmm. yeah. a, a post COVID, by the way, election. Obviously, uh, those folks in Ontario and those folks to the east know what's going on for those outside and in here in Alberta. Can you tell us about what we can expect to see from Ontarians? And of course, I believe today's the first debate. Is that right, Eric? Yeah, the, uh, I, uh, you know, Doug Ford uh, was, you know, in some trouble, I think, in terms of the polling for the for the Ontario government uh, a couple of years ago. And, you know, he was shoulder to shoulder with, you know, the Alberta premier and other premier conservative premiers when it came to things like the carbon tax. But he discovered that during the pandemic in particular, it, it, it worked better politically to align himself with the federal government and the policies that were coming forward in terms of vaccines and lockdowns, and I know that there's a lot of second-guessing of that now, but it has uh, held him in fairly good standing with the, the, the public. His uh, his poll numbers look as good as they did pretty much 
uh, where he was when he won a majority government the last time around. So um, right now, the biggest challenge, I think, for Stephen Del Duca and Andrea Horvath, the Liberal leader and the NDP leader in Ontario, is to separate themselves from each other to show that he or she can be the, the candidate that can come back and defeat Ford. And so long as they're locked in a logjam, um, for second place, that might be, end up being the fight for them is to stay out of third and at least be the official opposition if Ford is going to form another government in this province. Interesting discussion for sure. Thank you so much for the update and uh, tell, talking to us about you know your discussions from the West Block on the weekend. Appreciate your time this morning, Eric. My pleasure. Eric Sorensen, National Affairs Editor, Correspondent for Global News. And just so you know, obviously the West Block runs on global television, but it also re-airs on Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on 770 CHQR. Well, as we've been watching gas prices rise to record highs recently, it seems diesel prices are even higher. Dimitri Anastakis is a professor at Rotman School of Management and joins us to explain why this matters to everyone, not just owners of diesel vehicles. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, Sue. Okay, let's talk about this. So uh, typically diesel costs less than gas at the pumps, of late anyway. Why are we seeing that change? Well, historically, it usually costs less, uh, in part because it's used less uh, by normal consumers. But recently, the price of diesel has gone through the roof, in part because of a supply issue. Uh, You know, we all know about the war in Ukraine, which has really disrupted the global commodities market in oil. And, you know, people in Calgary are really sensitive to that. But what's happened is at the refining level, there's been a real shift in terms of the amount of diesel that's being put out there, which has really reduced the supply and is driving up the price of diesel globally. And it's not just here in Canada, it's everywhere. All across the planet, people are realizing just how much diesel is spiked uh, beyond gas, which is pretty unusual because most of the time diesel is cheaper. But because of the supply, uh, refiners are putting more precedence on getting out jet fuel because there's a real push on people traveling on planes. Uh, and this has really had an impact upon the amount of diesel that's out there, which means a, price is, a spike in prices. That is the why, Professor. And the effect is the other side. And I think you think, oh, well, I don't drive a diesel vehicle or, or whatever it might be. I don't use it for my business. Uh, but it impacts everybody because uh, we're tied to delivery services, a lot of them in diesel trucks. Is that the case? Absolutely, Andy. Absolutely. Because the thing is, people don't realize last year in Canada, there was about 1.5 million vehicles sold, passenger vehicles. And out of that big total, only about 65,000 are diesel cars. People don't really buy diesel that much anymore. But all of the trucks on the road that you see are fueled by diesel. And it really has an impact on the on the consumption side because so much of our produce, so much of our goods, so much of our services are delivered by trucks in North America. I mean, you drive the highways, you see all the trucks. And in an era right now, in the last couple of years, especially during COVID, when so much has been moved on to delivery, uh, Amazon, all that stuff, there's been a spike in the demand for a diesel and uh, a demand for the use of diesel. So think about it. You know, when you go into the grocery store and you want to buy a package of Driscoll strawberries, it's probably a 100% a chance that those strawberries have been delivered from California by a diesel truck, mm-hmm. as are all the products in a grocery store. And as soon as you see the price of diesel go up for those deliveries and those trucking firms, 
that's going to have a kind of spillover effect and a domino effect for the retailers themselves because the delivery people are now going to charge more because uh, diesel is going up. So this fuels this inflationary cycle. We're already in an inflationary cycle because of uh, the way the economy has been evolving. And when you add this segment, which is such an underlying factor on the supply chain side of everything that we consume, suddenly it has a spillover that impacts just about all prices. So everybody's feeling it, even if you don't drive a diesel car, and most of us don't. Fuels this inflationary cycle. I see what you did there, Professor. I like it. Uh, Do you think that these prices will last long term? I mean, I don't think any of us expect that gas prices are going to go down anytime soon. What about diesel? I think diesel will fluctuate, but I think we're in a kind of semi-permanent state where uh, gas prices are going to stay high and remain high. And I think diesel is also going to remain either at the same price as regular gasoline or a little bit higher. It's just a matter of supply and demand. You know, there are big factors going on here in terms of Russia has been a big supplier of oil and petroleum products. They're being cut out of the system, which uh, means that there's going to be less supply. And a lot of the refiners are, you know, they're not rushing to refine more diesel necessarily because they're making money. And and people realize, a lot of people should realize, I should say, that, you know, in North America, we haven't built a new refinery, an oil and gas refinery in about 40 years. So there's a limited amount that you can do to expand that. Even if, uh, you know, consumers and governments said, give us more diesel, it would be hard for the refiners to do so. And they're not exactly rushing to do so right now because they're making quite a bit of money off of it. Well, very interesting conversation. Thanks for your insight and breaking it down for us, Professor. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. Stuff That is Professor Dimitri Anastakis, professor from the Rotman School of Management. And we pay more. We pay more. <laughs> Bottom line. For everything. Yeah. I mean, even that's the thing. It, diesel, oh, big deal, doesn't affect us. We drive gasoline vehicles. Mm-hmm. Well, it sure does. And I'm just looking at gasbuddy.com for Calgary. It seems... Pretty much the average, 162.9 everywhere around the city. Yep. On the island, well over $2 a litre. Vancouver, over $2 a litre. I think Toronto's up around 2 bucks a litre. Here in Calgary and Edmonton, as far as the stats I've seen, we pay the lowest in the country at this point. So I guess that's a good thing. All in perspective. We're 162.9. Lowest in the country, but the highest we've ever seen. For so, sure. And that's what it gets down to. You know what it is also? It's the little things, Sue. And I believe, I I don't know the exact, I think it was apple juice, my kid's favorite brand. We buy the cheap stuff because they drink it like water. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, get the unsweetened stuff and they can have some apple juice. That's a big treat. And I believe it was $2 for the container that I bought. Not a lot. Okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm not here to say, oh, it's breaking the bank. But now it's $2.18. And you think, oh, that's... But those 18 cents when you're buying 50 products a month yeah. and 18 compared to something like meat, uh, like the professor said, when you're looking, you're looking at fruit, like you need those strawberries and they're coming from the U.S., mm-hmm. it's going to be higher. Are you that person? Like, for example, I look for those 15% off days and the special days are two for ones, buy two, get one free. There are people out there that don't even check, just throw it in the grocery cart. Mm-hmm. Have you looked at your bill? Do you I take the time? I wonder if that's changing, though. Maybe. And- you know, the way you're talking to is it reminds me of that old saying, you know, we're being nickeled and dimed to death. And it's true that, yeah. you know, that 17 you cents, it. it's, it's not really a big deal that one time, but over time, it really adds up to a lot. But I wonder if, you know, people who didn't check prices so much before are a little more cognizant of it, at least now. Yeah. You would think so. Yeah. Well, if I'm buying three of those boxes a week, that's 60 cents. 
That's $2.40 a month. And all of a sudden, I've got an extra 26 bucks a year on apple juice. That's so, just apple juice. Yeah. That, about all the and other products? It's a very rudimentary example, and I get it. But 26 bucks that's one product, like you say. Mm-hmm. 26 bucks used to be half a tank of gas. And now gas is more expensive. Exactly. It's all connected. Hey, here's a little tip for you. Maurice says uh, we need to figure out that speed uses more gas or fuel. Maurice says he slowed down years ago. So if you slow your vehicle down, you won't use as much gasoline. Well, and you would think, Maurice, on mass with a lot of the speeds being reduced, was it last May 40 that's kilometers right. per hour? In our little subdivisions. Maybe that's having... Maybe it's helping. Maybe that has some sort of an impact. I can't do that on the Deerfoot, though. And please don't anybody else do it. Just follow the speed That's Sue on the side of the Deerfoot in her golf cart going for her electric bicycle. (laughs) In the left lane. But, you know, I I think that we can all do what we can. And for for me, it does get down to streamlining the trips. Before, it'd be nothing to zip out two or three times a day for two or three different things. Yep. Now, can I get all three done in that one trip? As fourth doses of the COVID vaccine roll out, doctors are noticing that seniors are not receiving these doses as quickly as they did with the first three. This could be for a number of reasons, but one Calgary doctor believes seniors are seeing mixed messaging about COVID as well as the availability of the vaccine might be an issue. So joining us to talk more about it is Dr. Christine Gibson, family physician and trauma therapist here in Calgary. Good morning to you, doctor. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, no problem at all. Okay, so seniors not getting their fourth doses as quickly as probably medical professionals would like to see that. They've had their last three. Why are they not getting the fourth one as quickly as as we'd hoped? Well, we don't have formal research on it, so it's just kind of speculation uh, amongst our community. And I've, you know, been asking around uh, because I think it's a really important question because a, a lot of them are dying. So our mortality has already surpassed what we saw last year. So they're, they're not getting that message either. Um, and, and I think just the, the problem is that most people think COVID is over or that it's become so mild it's just like the flu now. And, and that's certainly not the case. There's many elderly people who are still dying and getting very sick. And there's still many younger people getting long COVID. So it is still a very big concern for us. Could it be a case, Dr. Gibson, that, you know, we've seen a lot of the restrictions lifted and life seems to be getting back to normal. So the thought process is hey, things are back to normal. Uh, They've got that mindset that it's unnecessary. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when they removed all public health measures, despite the fact that the pandemic is still ongoing, I think that mixed message really confused a lot of people and and still does. Uh, Not only that, but the message is just not getting out to the people that the fourth dose is available. So I heard it on Twitter. Um, My mother is in her 70s and she had absolutely no indication that it was true. So, you know, this, this is something that it wasn't targeted to the people that are actually eligible. So from the medical community, then thoughts and recommendations on how to get those vaccine numbers up, how to get that information, particularly to the seniors in our communities? Well, I certainly think, you know, uh, primary care providers are stretched. You know, family physicians are already at their maximum capacity for, so I I don't know that we can rely on the community anymore, but if, if they hadn't, you know, let go of all of the COVID-related staff. They, they could be doing phone campaigns, email campaigns, and just making sure that those people are uh, aware. And then targeted campaigns for people who have, like, language or um, other kind of transportation issues that they might be able to reach through their cultural centers. Um, but people who are 
you know, we're placed at risk in, in communities that were having very, very high rates during the first beginnings of the pandemic. Interesting. Very interesting. We've got a text in here, Dr. Gibson. It says, my mother lives in a senior's lodge in central Alberta, and they were told they would not be receiving their four shot as Alberta Health had decided that they would not. We're very confused about the truth of the matter is this could be a miscommunication, but Alberta Health Services is indeed, Dr. Gibson, if you can clear it up, recommending that the seniors get the shots. Am I right? Yeah, they sure are. And, and you know, I was under the impression that a place like a long-term care center or assisted living would be rolling it out formally. So that's quite a surprising text. Now, what age group is eligible is another text we just got in, doctor. Yeah, over the age of 70 is eligible in this last round. And then people who are First Nations. And so I I don't know how the campaign is working in that region. I wonder if it's, you know, people of our age, you know, we're we're the the kids of the seniors. Are we sort of fed up with the whole thing and maybe not passing the information on to our parents, our grandparents, for example, because, you know, we're we're tired of the whole thing. We want this to be over. Oh, I hear you. (laughs) I feel the same way. If I wasn't seeing so much COVID uh, when I do these access shifts, I mean, it's, 90% 90% COVID that I'm still seeing. The the rates are very, very high right now. And for many people, it looks like a common cold. And so I can see why we're very severe cold. I can see why the, the, the sentiment has changed and they're saying, well, why are we worried so much about this problem? But the people who haven't seen, you know, 10% of vaccinated, 30% unvaccinated people getting chronic COVID symptoms, which are very, very serious. Um, and then the, the very high rates of the elderly that are dying, um, you know, that, that's what we're seeing in medicine. But I can see that the general public might not be aware. Yeah, yeah absolutely. From me inside looking out, uh, you know what's going on. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. For sure. Dr. Christine Gibson, family physician and trauma therapist here in Calgary. Well, long lines continue at airports and there are calls for the government to ease COVID rules ahead of the busy travel season to try and help out. No word on that as of yet, but with all the help we need to find out what we need to know before we head to the airport for our trip, we're joined this morning by the travel lady, Leslie Cater. Hi, Leslie. Hi, good morning, Sue. So what exactly is the problem at the airports? Why are we seeing these long lines and delays at security particularly? Right. Well, apart from some technical glitches that happened, the main problem is shortage of people. And we're seeing this across all industries. But of course, uh, at the uh, airport, the security screening is very important. And uh, the association representing those workers, that they're desperately short of people. They're trying to um, encourage people to join the industry. I heard that they're offering training plus $24 an hour plus uniform and you know that's kind of on the lower paid side and it's a stressful job Mm -hmm. so this is why they're not attracting a lot of people but we do need those people in the other issue is that there's a lot to look at for these people there's a lot of screening with our um, airport personnel as well so many forms so many digital apps it all takes time yeah, and it's interesting because if you have questions, we love having you on to answer our questions. But a lot of people pick up the phone and, and try to call the airline, and we're having issues with that as well. The, the, the waits continue, don't they, Leslie? Oh, my goodness me, yes. And we see it firsthand in the agency. Uh, you know, we've got calls on hold that go three, four, five hours. 
and we put it on speakerphone and we try and get on with the rest of our work as best we can. But just yesterday I looked up and I had three of my girls all on hold. That is an awful waste of time, not just our time, but you can imagine the amount of time that's been wasted by the airlines. But they're all short-staffed. They're uh, recruiting like mad, but they've got to train these people because no point having somebody on the other end of the phone who doesn't know what they're talking about. Okay, Leslie, so what do we do? I mean, we know we're supposed to get to the airport early, but how early these days and what else? Yeah, well, these days they're saying two hours for a domestic flight, which was never that long before. Three hours for an international. But I think there's a lot that we as travelers can do, um, apart from getting uh, to the airport early. Get all your documents ready, printed in an order. And I like paper. I take a binder with me where I can flick through the pages and we prepare this type of thing for our clients with who've got complex itineraries. So they've got it there. They don't have to necessarily start shuffling through some uh, digital device to do that. So paper is good. Make sure that your connecting times are good. You know, we in Calgary, a lot of time we connect through Toronto, Amsterdam, Frankfurt, whatever it might be. Make sure you don't just have an hour because in the old days, it used to default when you booked a plane ticket. It would say like an hour is the minimum connecting time. Well, it's not enough anymore. You need to have a little bit more time than that. Otherwise, you may end up on the other end missing your flight or without your luggage. Yeah, and that could usually <laughs> ruin a trip, I would think. Uh, thank you. I've so, been there, done that, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. there you have it, right? <laughs> Ooh, oh yeah, you know, do it. Uh, do what you can to 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 make it easy on yourself, and uh, perhaps consult a travel agent like Leslie Cater. Thank you so much oh. for your time and your insight. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Sue. And as Leslie Cater, she goes by the Travel Lady. You can find her online at thetravellady.ca. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.